This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's Justin Weideman with special guest, professional FIM Supercross racer, Shane McElrath. Here we go. Dude, Shane, thanks for taking the time to uh, join us. And if uh, you guys don't know who Shane is, he's a professional motocross rider. Tell us a little about your story, who you're actually currently riding for. You know, what's going on with you, man? Yeah, so it's uh, it's really cool to be on here. So I currently ride for Rick Ware Racing in the World Supercross Series. And I'm, I'm actually on a, a different team right now for the AMA Supercross Series. Um, but it's been a, kind of a, a one-off deal with the, the World Supercross starting up. And Rick wanted to go race. Racing. He came and talked to me. He's like, hey, uh, I want to go racing. I want to go win a world championship and I want you to do it for me. So um, we had a little bit of time and Rick was like, whatever, whatever you need, we'll go and we'll go and do that. And so he's like, this is what we're going to put together. I'm like, sweet. That's exactly uh, the route I would go if, if we were to do that. And now getting to uh, move forward with uh, just going into to year two of the World Supercross and um, our, our team's looking good. And for next year, Rick is, has already said like, hey, we're going to be in AMA Supercross and World Supercross and all under one one awning and one branding. So it's going to be cool. You know, let's talk about your your career, like where you've mm-hmm. gone. So you start, you know, you started out what was I, your third was 13 or 14 year pro debut. Yeah. So I turned professional in at the end of 2013. I raced the last couple of races uh, of the season that year. And 2014 was my first full year uh, of professional racing. I was on a Honda then the TLD team. After that, I was on Moto Concepts Honda and then Rocky Mountain KTM and Husqvarna. So I've, the last couple of years, I've, I've definitely danced around all over the place. But um, it's it's been cool, like really getting to meet a lot of new people. And it's been a challenge, though, because it's like, OK, I got to go here, get to know all these people, work really quick, race really quick. And then, all right, see you guys later. So it's it's not an ideal setup, but this is now my my ninth year um, as a pro and my third year going into the 450 class. And for me, it's like I had a good 250 career, but the transition to the 450 class is, is not an easy one. So I've been trying to get my feet under me and um, really just continue my career growth. And uh, in the World Supercross, I was able to race the 250 class. In AMA Supercross, they have some rules that not necessarily age rules, but performance-based rules that if you perform too well or, or X amount of points each year or win championships, then... Uh, you can't race in the 250 class anymore. So that's what I, I have to race the 450 in the AMA Supercross. And it's it's something that everybody kind of dreams of. And for me, it's like trying to take advantage of every opportunity I've had, even though I haven't been there super long. But it's like right now I'm on the Twisted T Suzuki team and I've known them for a really long time and they have a really good platform and they have some really good guys this year too. So um, I'm trying to develop my 450 career and and learn the 450 class. Like it's totally different than the 250 class. That's a lot of bike. The 450 has enough to hurt you. <laughs> yeah, and that's what a lot of people don't really understand is like in the 250 class that that's what it's all about. And just kind of like power to weight ratio. Like some of the 250s, it's like having a naturally aspirated five liter Mustang with a thousand horsepower. That's kind of what we're we're getting out of the bikes and the 450s. It's like we have to turn them down just to be able to race them because it's like they're built so good and and so fast that it's like, dude, you got to be careful and you got to respect it. And uh, the 250s, like you can you can get some really good power out of it, 
Um, it comes down to kind of reliability and rideability. So there's a lot, a lot going on in our, our little industry. The other crazy thing I'd like to talk about is the amount of training and how tight the scale of all you guys are. You don't know who's going to win on Saturday night. Anybody on the line can win. You know, the kind of training and stuff you guys have to go through to, you know, to be competitive at that level. Yeah. And that, I, that's kind of what you're starting to see. The age of the 450 guys, like the top 450 guys, the age is getting higher and higher just kind of as people are, are getting better. I mean, Eli Tomac, this is arguably his strongest year he's ever had. It is his strongest year. And he's, he's in his 30s now. And it's like before you had guys retiring at 25, 26 and they they were fine with it but now it's like the age is getting so high and with the 250 class rules it's kind of backfilling the the 450 class and so there i think everybody racing right now in the 450 class it's like everybody but three people are past champions whether that's the 450 class or the 250 class um and i'm one that's not so it's okay i'm i'm trying to find my way in the 450 class but all the guys I'm racing against, it's like they've been there for many years now. And it's like, because uh, Ken Roxon's my teammate right now. And we're just, we're the same age. Like he's uh, three months older than me. And my rookie year in the 250 class was his rookie year in the 450 class. Like he's nine years now. And it's just crazy, like how different people are at different levels of their career. And I'm just trying to build. I'm trying to get better. I've won races in the 250 class, and I've, I've raced against a lot of these guys that are in the 450 class. But the 450 experience, the 450 racecraft, controlling that power for the whole race, it's a different animal. And that's what I'm really, really trying to, to figure out and, and learn from all the guys that are out there. I mean, it's crazy how good some of those guys are. And a lot of people don't quite understand and how the tracks break down just how rough they get, how much time we're, we're on the track. It, it's pretty wild. You, you know, you're riding a Suzuki with Kenny being your teammate and a lot. How's being in that kind of in that center circle with the Suzuki guys? How's that going? Uh, for me, that was, that was kind of one of the big pieces of why I came to this team. So kind of a backstory a little bit. So in my contract with Rick Ware, um, I'm only contracted for World Supercross. Well, in AMA Supercross, I'm like, hey, I'd, I'd like to race the AMA Supercross. And we we couldn't really come to terms doing it with Rick um, just because he didn't really have the funding at the time. He didn't. He had to get all his all his own sponsors. And um, I mean, we we're working with like three months of time to get ready for that. So um, he was like, well, here, I'll just let you race for another team during AMA Supercross. I was able to kind of come to this team. And one of the biggest pieces of that was Ken Roxon and Cal Chisholm, both veterans of the 450 class, both well experienced. And the Suzuki is the last of the Mohicans with when it comes to, to kickstart. But the bike is actually like really good. And, and it kind of makes sense now after being on the bike, why they haven't been on the same level or evolution of other manufacturers. And the bike is really good as it is. And so, I mean, it's kind of one of those things like it's a good bike and it's it's all designed to work well together. Yeah, electric start would be really nice, but it, it humbles you a little bit when you got to kick it. But yeah, Ken and Chisholm, really great teammates, really knowledgeable. And for me, it's like I'm trying to build my 450 career and what better guys to learn from. Chisholm, they, they hired him specifically to help develop the bike because he's so good at it. 
and trying to learn from him. And, and with Kenny was like, dude, I would talk to Dustin like before I was even on the team. He was like, talk to Dustin and see what they can do because the bike's really good. So I, I gave him a call and it was like, well, I mean, we weren't really expecting this, but let us see what we can do. And now it's like I'm confident in the team around me because of of the experience and the wisdom that those guys have. So um, for me, it's like, OK, yeah, we're, we're learning and growing together, um, but I have some really good guys ahead of me that I can piggyback off of. You know, you went over to Europe, rode there. Well, I say more than Europe, Australia, Europe, a couple different places. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how the dirt's different, you know, track design. It, does that come in a lot of play, you know, when you're racing in Europe versus what, you know, Dirtworks is building over here? Yeah. So um, with when we went to the UK, uh, the dirt there was pretty hard packed. The, the dirt there was really similar to being here in California. There, there was moisture in it when we started, um, but kind of after two days of riding, it being indoors, um, they I think they did put a little water on it, like using a water truck and stuff. But all it did was really pack in, um, and as it dries out, it doesn't it doesn't dig down. It kind of just breaks away, so it gets really like pebbly um, and loose. And so that one, it kind of caught a lot of people off guard because it was like there there wasn't many options for lines because of how dry the track was. The track overall was built really well. Um, the guys at Dirtworks, they they uh, they have built a lot of tracks over here that that we've ridden on and that we'll practice on. So then when we went to uh, Australia, everybody was like, "Oh yeah, Australia is even worse." Like uh, being hard packed. And so I'm like, "Okay, well, we we got there, we did the track walk. I'm like, dude, this dirt looks really good." They were like, "Yeah, don't don't play into that too much." Like, dude, I'm telling you, it gets really hard packed. And we had heard that they they brought in new dirt for uh, Australia this year. They're like, yeah, don't trust it. Don't trust it. Like, it's going to be hard packed. And that dirt there was actually really good. That was almost identical to our dirt here that we race in in Arlington in Texas. It's kind of a brighter clay, um, but it, it gets it's kind of like a little bit sandy. And so it, it gets good ruts, but it also like can get loose on top. So it, it felt like racing right at home, honestly, like even though we were in different countries and um, in different stadiums, it was like we had California dirt in, in the UK and we had Arlington dirt in Texas. So as far as the tracks being built and the the soil types, they were pretty normal and consistent for uh, different types that we race on. So how much did you were familiar with this machine before you guys went over? Did you get a lot of time, like seat time before you guys headed over? Or was it kind of, I rode the thing once and, uh, you know, we were putting it on a plane. Yeah, that was pretty much it. So I, I ended the last four outdoors on the Yamaha with the Club MX team. After that, I, I took a week off. And so our outdoor series ended like September 2nd or something like early on. Well, the race bikes had to be crated up and shipped out on September 15th. Um, but our first race wasn't until like October 8th or something. So everything had to be done and sent out early to, to get there on time. So we were still building the bike and putting it together and trying to like, I, I once it got closer to the ship date, it was like, we just got to get these things out the door. Like, 
if we ride them, cool. If not, oh, well, we, we'll have some time yep. to practice before we get on the race bike. But it was, okay, like Rick's paying me good money. Like I, I told Rick I was going to go over and, and try to do my best and try and win this thing. And it's like going into the race, I'm like, shoot, I feel like I'm underprepared to do my job um, just because of the, the timing that we had. But I got two days on the race bike before it, it shipped out. Then by the time we got the practice bike together, I got two days on the practice bike before we flew to um, the UK to race. So definitely was a little bit underprepared. And I just kind of came in with like, you know what, I, I've done what I can. And the, the team has, we, we've been scrambling to get it all together just in the time that we had. The thing was, it's like, okay, well, I've been racing all year. I'm, I know I'm in shape. I know the the bike pretty well, just spending time on it in the past. And, and it's a good bike. And so it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to do my best. And with the, the triple crown format or the, the three race format, it was like super intense. And that's with the, the shorter races, there's some guys that can go really fast for a short amount of time. And so my starts were not very good at the, the first round. And honestly, the, the inconsistency of some of the other guys is what really kind of gave me the win um, because I, I was fairly consistent, but I had to come from the back every time. And I, I didn't put myself in a good position. I was I was doing everything I can, but it was kind of like okay, we we were a little underprepared coming in. So to kind of come out with the win there, and Rick was there, and it, even before the race, he's like, "Dude, when when you win, I'm coming down there." And I'm just like, "All right, I'm I'm gonna try, but no no promises." So I've been fortunate enough to meet Rick, and um, yeah. his personality matches that. That um, I can imagine the intensity that dude brought to the situation when you got a yeah. W, and um. That had to be really spectacular. <laughs> and it, it was cool because like I I'd spoke to Rick many times uh, on the phone going back to April of last year. That was kind of when we first spoke about WSX. Rick's like, I want you to do this for me. I'm like, I don't know what it is. At that point, it's just a, it was just a rumor. It's speculation. Nobody knows what it is. And when the time came down to it, it's like, dude, we're going to do this. So from April until when we got to the UK, that was the first time I actually met Rick in person. So like seeing him there and watching practice, like, dude, he's sitting there. He's got his, he's got the times up on his phone. Like he's, he's literally watching everything. And I'm like, Rick really loves it. He loves the racing environment. He loves being there. He loves the adrenaline. And so for me, it's like, okay, this isn't just a, a guy that's got a lot of money that just wants to kind of go and do something for fun. He he was really into it. And for me, it was really cool to see because it's like, that's somebody I want to be involved with. He takes it serious. He's he's a Christian guy. And and we've spoke about that a lot now. And and it's it's encouraging for me because it's like we can we can pray before we go out on the track and Rick is as competitive as they come. And so when it, when it's time to do our job, like we get the job done. And so it's been really cool getting to know him and be a part of this building up this team from, from nothing. And it's like, okay, well, here, here's what we got. We got funding from the, the series and we're going to run summit racing on the shroud. It's like, Whatever you say, Rick. Sweet. Yep. And, yep. That's, uh, I'm good. I'll ride yeah. it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Jackson, let's talk a little bit about the bike yeah. you rode. It's a, from a stock bike off the factory floor compared to what you guys are racing, you know, it's, it's just like any other motorsport. You know, you guys are upgrading these things and it's it's crazy. You just want to run us through some of the things that the mechanics do to these things to make them, you know, race competitive? Yeah. So really kind of with the time that we had, all, all we were able to do was do some engine work and do some suspension work. 
the the wheels are a little bit aftermarket, um, just more so for durability on the Supercross tracks. But Twisted Development built the engine, and that's who that's who currently does my engines right now on the Suzuki and and just about every bike I rode last year. That's who did the engines there. He's located here in SoCal. Yeah, it was it was a a quick process of getting it together. So he was like, "Dude, I built it the best I can and as safe as I can with the time I had." kind of where we we ran into problems is like we we built these bikes so the the FIM the sanctioning body for the World Supercross they they control the the fuel regulations so when we're dynoing the bikes and running in practice over here it's like okay like bikes running good we got the dyno numbers good everything's running clean but that we were on a fuel that we didn't get to race on so we finally got the fuel like not long before uh, we actually went to race and everybody had problems with that fuel like there some people's bikes wouldn't even run that was the fuel that the FIM said every, everybody's running this so it's like okay Jamie from Twisted Development had to go back into the engine, pretty much remap the whole thing, redyno everything to get it to run on that fuel. But that fuel really kind of took some some power away, really from everybody's bikes. So we battled that a little bit. I would say the the bike as it is, it was built really good. Then the fuel kind of took us a step back a little bit, um, which was the same for everybody. But it was just like I know what those bikes can do. And then when we put the fuel in there, it's like okay, this is. And especially like on the 250s, like that's a little unforget. You need every ounce of power you can squeeze out of this thing. You know, a lot of us grew up riding 125s and 250Fs and that. And, you know, you got to ride this like a 125. You you have to disrespect it. Speaking of that, what was your first big bike? What got you to kind of thinking, you know, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life? Um, So I grew up riding like my my whole family raced at some point my both my parents both my brothers and both my sisters like everybody raced something at some point whether it be four wheelers or motorcycles my my older brother eventually got into drag racing so like i grew up that's that's what we did as a family um i grew up my dad was always like oh ktm ktm's the best bike ktm's the best bike so i i grew up on a ktm mini bikes all through through 125s and uh, my dad was against four strokes he was like we're never getting a four stroke and it was in 2009 i talked him into like dad i can get a kawasaki 250f and i can pay for it with contingency like look look at this contingency program and i i can pay for it like you don't have to buy it and so i finally talked him into that and just at that time, the the 2009 model was still carbureted. The 2010s that were coming out were fuel injected. Um, but just like I, I'd only ridden a four stroke a few times uh, up to that point. But then I got on the Kawasaki. I started racing it. And I'm like, dude, this is different than a two stroke. Um, but then my riding just continued to progress. And after that, it was like, OK, well, we had somebody help us out with with some Yamahas like they see me doing well and they're like, here, I'm going to build you a couple Yamahas and I want you to race those at the nationals. Then I did that. And those bikes were really good. Then my sister actually bought me a Honda kind of towards the end of my amateur career. And at the time I was like, dude, this bike is amazing. And that, that one was the first fuel injected one I rode. And so kind of like it was that transition era of a big turn in motorsports industry from going to carbureted to, to fuel injection. And at that point it was like, okay, I'm not on 125s anymore. It's like, we're all four strokes. And 
it was just funny how like my dad was just so against them and which my dad owned the service shop. He worked on anything, but that he just four strokes were a lot harder to work on. And so the two strokes, like he could, he could have them running super good and, and low maintenance also. So, but once I got older and more competitive and just seeing where the sport was going, it's like, okay, if we want a shot at this, we got to keep up with, with what everybody's doing. Dude, we're, we're in the thumper era now. You know, I can remember 04, 05. That's kind of that era, you know, the early 2000s when thumper started to dominate. You had the sure. dudes on the YZ426s that just nobody knew what to do because the things it was uh it was an odd animal on the track. And now, you know, the two strokes are the kind of little bit of the dinosaurs. But, you know, Yamaha and KTM, Husqvarna, all those brands mm-hmm. still developing the two stroke technology, which is really cool. Yeah. But that is one of the things I appreciated about the straight rhythm deal. Everybody's riding two smokers. So it, uh, it's that nice vintage throwback. You know, I like to say that, you know, the, the nineties to the early two thousands, that golden era of motocross where kind of, mm-hmm. you know, everything came together and then it, you know, changed. Yeah. And it, that's the thing with straight rhythm is like, because the Troy Lee designs team I was on with Red Bull doing the straight rhythm, it was kind of like, we were not not necessarily expected, but it's like they, they want all the Red Bull athletes doing it. And so for us in the position we were, it's like straight rhythms every year because our team's sponsored by Red Bull. So that was really cool. And it was a great learning experience for Supercross. It's like, dude, take the turns out and you can work on how, how good you can go through the rhythms and the whoops. And it was like, I think fifth or 2014 was the first year. I kind of did it on a whim that year, a week and a half before the event. They were like, Hey, you want to do straight rhythm? Sure. But I I did it on a 350 in the 450 class. So it it was like kind of just, okay, I'll, I'll just go out there. Um, kind of more so to fill a spot a little bit. Um, but then the next 15, 16 and 17, it was like, okay, I'm in the 250 class. I'm on my race bike. I think I, I got like a second and then I got, I won the next two years, but it's like, dude, this event is really good practice leading into supercross training. So then it was in 2018, they, they had had the two stroke class, but then in 2018, the end of t- 2018, it was all two strokes. They're like, Hey, uh, we're going to do straight rhythm on two strokes. Sweet. That's fine. At that point, I'd never ridden a two-stroke on Supercross. Like, I hadn't ridden a two-stroke since I got off them when I was, like, 15. They put a lot of time into building these bikes. And they, at that point, I was in the bigger class, like the 250s. Um, but then they put 300 big board kits on them, put a lot of R&D in them. Like, they wanted them to run good. So by the time the bike was done, I rode it for like 20 minutes the week of on Supercross just to break it in. And then we went straight to press day and practice at Red Bull Straight Rhythm. And I was like, dude, I felt like such a fish out of water. Like the two-stroke and four-stroke are just totally different. With the two-stroke thing, I always like tell people it's all about commit. You have to commit to it. With the four-stroke, you can second-guess yourself a little bit. And especially with the fuel-injected bikes, you don't have that dreaded, you know, FCR bog. You can recommit to it if, you know, you talk yourself back into it. On the two-stroke, it's all or nothing. Yeah. Obviously, the four-stroke has a lot of engine braking, just the the weight of the motor. The two-stroke has essentially none. And it's like, I, I rode it for like 20 minutes at the practice track. It's like, all right. Like I knew that track really well. So I could kind of get on it and just go through the motions a little bit. I'm like, sweet, feels good. Then we went and had to learn the actual track at straight rhythm for practice. And they had those speed checks, like the walls and took off my first run and I'm hit the first couple doubles. I'm just cruising. I'm like, all right, I got this. 
And I just, I didn't use the brakes going up the speed check because I'm like, oh, the, the bike will slow down on itself. Well, dude, I just straight launched off that because the bike didn't slow down at all. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? At that point, I was like, this is not how I thought it was going to be. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your kind of training regiment and, you know, what it takes to, you know, compete on the professional level. So what time's your day start and what's the first thing you do? Um, it's kind of depends on where we're at in the season. Um, so our, our off season normally would be leading up to Anaheim one which is kind of October through December. Um, this year was a little bit different because of the World Supercross kicking off. Um, but right now it's it's kind of like we go and we race on the weekend and then Sunday we have completely off. Monday we'll do I'll do some light cardio, um, some stretching. Then I'll do like training on the bike Tuesday and Wednesday, um, work on things that we we needed to work on from the weekend before and Thursday is normal. It depends on like when we travel. So if it's if it's a longer coast to coast, we'll fly on Thursday um, so that we're not traveling so far on Friday right before the race. Um, it it kind of depends right now on if I go down and like I'm kind of beat up, like I'll need extra recovery during the week. I'll, I'll take it a little lighter. Um, but for me, it's like, it's not super like, okay, got to get up at this time. Like if I'm, if I need more rest, then I, I won't set an alarm and I'll sleep until seven thirty or eight and then get my day going just so that I can make sure that I'm, I'm recovered. But, um, on days when I, I feel good the next day, it's like, okay, I can get up at six thirty and kind of spend some time in the morning, uh, reading or praying or, kind of when it's quiet and do my training for the day. And it's not a super heavy load right now because we're in season. We just started the Supercross season in 17 races. So weekend to weekend is is not a big deal right now because we've been staying in SoCal. We've been racing in SoCal. But as we start traveling on Thursdays or Fridays and Sundays, like that almost takes a whole day and a half away from our recovery and, and our rest. So it kind of changes week to week depending on where we're going. But um, in off season, we'll, we'll do a lot heavier load, three to four days of training, two days of cardio, and we'll, we'll have Sunday off to get some rest. But it changes throughout the year depending on injuries, crashing, where we're at in the season. Like, do we need to take an extra day this week to be ready to go for the race this weekend? So what's your favorite out of national track, supercross track? Where's your favorite place to go ride? I would probably have to say Redbud in Michigan. Like that place, it's just between the the fans, the dirt type, the jumps, like the terrain. I just feel like they have the best dirt. They have a, they have a little bit of sand. They have a little bit of like loamy kind of mulch, dark soil. It's such a fun track to ride. Like it just it flows really well. You, then you show up and it's normally like July Fourth weekend, and so you you see America proud Americans is like, you know, they say, uh, the Daytona 500 is America's race. Yeah. They just haven't, the people that say that haven't been to Redbud yet. One last question. So when you get home after a long, you know, either your season or a long, you know, long supercross race and you go home, what's, what's your like cheat meal, your go-to, you know, home cook. This is what I, what I want to eat. That's a good question. Um, I'm a big Chipotle guy. Like I've kind of worn my wife out on Chipotle. It's like, well, anywhere, like we're always on the road. We're always traveling and there's always Chipotle. And I, I, I can eat it anytime. Like, dude, it's, I, I can eat it twice a day if I need to. But my wife, she's like, 
she hears Chipotle now, she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but as far as a cheap meal, it's hard to say. Like, I love, love a good steak, chicken wings, preferably boneless. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm more of a savory guy. I'm not, I'm not much into sweets, so... I just I, I love meat and potatoes. Any any kind of meat and potatoes, I'm I'm there for it. So my final question before we jump off the air, who are you listening to right now? Like when you're working out or driving in the car, what's the number one on your playlist? Uh I I like country a lot. I like to sing along. Um my favorite sing along is probably gotta be God's Country by Blake Shelton. Like yeah, it it goes hard. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah, I gotta put you on the spot. I, I need I need a mechanical dad joke real quick. Ooh, ooh, that's oh, that's a hard one. You uh, you caught me off guard, man. Well, see, I was before our interview. I was online looking up mechanical dad jokes. Like, give me the funniest, the funniest dad jokes you can find. And I was a little bit disappointed because none of them were as good as the ones you've already said. So, I'm <laughs> like, okay. Oh, how about this one? What do you call a mechanic who does nothing but sit on the sofa? Uh, a flat tire. An auto man. So like an ottoman, oh, kind of like. The- oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have one that I found. It says, uh, "When you're in California, make sure your mechanic uses a state flag to check your oil." It says, "Then you'll get a super Cali flagger dipstick expert diagnosis." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, that's about the only one I feel like I." Can- Dude, they um. They've set Mary Poppins on a golf tee and just knocked that one out of the park. That's that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, guys, I'm Justin with Summit Racing. We have Shane McElrath here. We, uh, We appreciate you taking the time, and we'll see you folks later. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.